So last Sunday we spent some time talking about the new covenant in Christ. We saw the, the law doesn't suddenly vanish. It, it doesn't do a disappearing act. It goes from being a standard over here written in stone to God's writing it on our heart, changing us, making those things our desires. That's what we see in the New Covenant. A law not on stone, but on hearts. New desires. In Christ, we're given those new desires. We're given new longings. In Christ, we have a hope that comes not from our own ability, but from Him. Some of you might be wondering why we're spending so much time reviewing the law, talking about it, after we spent so much time going through it. Like, okay, we get it, the law already. Well, today we'll see the law and hold up this notion, this biblical teaching called justification. And that's a major reason why we need to look back at the law and say, what else is said about the law? Because this is a big deal to us and to our culture. There's a lot of confusion that exists around the law and justification. This confusion isn't new. It's not new to us. This was going on in what we would know of as really Turkey, the Galatian churches, and many others. Before we jump into that, if if we were to generally, broadly survey Shreveport-Bossier, and we were to say something very simple, how do you define Christianity? What is Christianity all about? Just take responses. How, How do you think that would go in our communities? How does it go with your neighbors? I hope that you're neighboring well enough to kind of know where the people are in relation to you and your faith and the gospel and Jesus. What do they say? What would they say? I think responses would, and this, I'm going to generalize because I haven't done the study. I don't have numbers to hold up before you, but I have had plenty of conversations, and I would say generally these things would fall in, in basically three categories. They would go something like this Christianity has to do with how I was raised. I was raised Baptist, I'm a Christian. My grandma was Methodist. I guess I'm a Methodist. We're Catholic. I was born into a Catholic family. I still go to the Catholic church. Comes from family of origin would would be generally one answer that you would get. What is Christianity all about? Well, it's all about the family that I was born into. That's one answer that you would get. This version of Christianity is rooted in the identity that you have in your family, localized. That's your Christian identity. Category two. Again, these are, these are broad strokes here. Christianity is based on what you do. It's based on following the Ten Commandments. I doubt anyone that you talk to would say it's based on following the Ten Commandments. 
But what you might hear, what, what would be way more common, is something about, I'm a good guy. Yeah, I went to church. I went to church when I was a kid. I'm a good guy. We do good things. You might not even hear that. You might just hear the list, the litany of all the good that's done. And this is, again, in response to the question, tell me about Christianity. How do you define it? I'm a good guy. Some may say that Christianity is aligned with their political position, whether it be on the right or the left. I'm a Christian. I uphold these set of values and I carry them out. I execute those values in my life. You might hear something like that, again, generally. And then the third category, there, there's some sense of Jesus, some encounter with him, but that's almost this Gnostic thing or this something that happened in the past. Yeah, in the past, and again, this might be connected with any of the other two options. So I was raised Baptist, and when I was a kid, I walked the aisle. My pastor talked to me, uh, and I was saved then. So how would we go about identifying Christianity? This isn't our neighbors now. It's not generally a question out there. This is a question that should land on our heart. What is this all about? Our text today has to do with the law and the heart of Christianity. And it'll show us that heart as justification by faith alone. Union with Christ alone and righteousness by grace alone. Is that at the heart of the way you would define who you are as a Christian? First, justification by faith alone. I'm kind of throwing us in here, right? This is in the middle of an argument that Paul is making. And here's what happened. Here's a brief summary of this confrontation. So generally in the Galatian churches, there had been churches planted, and they were planted on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, and risen. Our hope is in him and in him alone. And then what happened was Judaizers came in. They came into these young churches, and they said, Christ is great, isn't he? And now what you have to do to fully get there in the gospel and to fully be a Christian is you have to keep the law. You have to obey the ceremonial laws. You Gentiles especially, you guys better watch it. You're going to have to be circumcised. Your diet is going to have to change. You're going to have to conform yourself to live this out in a, in a way that the, the Jews would understand. If you're not, you're not fully a Christian. Christ plus the law. And the way that, that was expressed with Peter and Paul, Demiron talked about this. His example was a bologna sandwich. I like hot dogs, ribs, uh, things like that, pork chops. So here's Peter ministering to the churches in Galatia, enjoying a certain diet that Gentiles would really enjoy. And Peter's Jewish. And the gospel has freed him, so he's, he's chowing down on his bologna sandwich. 
on his hot dogs, on his pork chops, loving it, ministering to the brothers and sisters there. Then some men were sent there from James called the circumcision party. And that was the group that said, hey guys, you're going to have to keep the law. You're going to have to, Christ plus this, then you're good. And so they show up on the scene, and guess what Peter does? He runs out the back door. Oh no, look who just got here. And he ducks out. And that may sound trivial to us, but you know what Paul says? He says, Peter, that's a gospel issue. When you duck out the back door, you're saying something about Jesus Christ. You're leaving and getting out is saying something that's not true about the power and glory of Christ. You're leaving the feast is telling a lie. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's Peter. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He called them out. He's saying, you're enjoying all this stuff over here, but when they show up, you're out the back door. You're living this double life. You're saying Christ, but you're really saying law. Then he goes on, our text goes this way. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. First he's drawing this, hey, we've got it going on. We're both Jews. Not Gentile, Gentile sinners. Tongue firmly planted in cheek. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Luther has this quote that's been shortened a bit, but uh, the quote goes like this. Because of the article of justice, Because if the article of justification stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. The doctrine of justification is so central to what it means to be a Christian that if we lose it, we've lost Christianity itself. So, how are we justified? What is justification? Parents, we, we know this term well. Kids, stop, stop trying to justify yourself to me. What's the kid doing in that moment? They're trying to prove that they're right. And adults, don't pretend like you don't understand this. We understand this in the court of law, right? To be just is to be proven right. You get pulled over. Do you know the speed limit? Mm-hmm. How fast were you going? And then you, you, you begin some form of justification. Just how quickly you needed to get to the store. Whatever it may be. To justify is to, to declare yourself right in that sense. 
I'm right. I'm right to go as fast as I was going, officer. The Bible to justify means to declare right or righteous. It's a legal term. It's in the court of law. Justification in the Bible has to do with the courts of God. In his courts, it's about our standing before him. How does he view us? There's really nothing more central for us to be concerned with in this. How do we stand before God, before his courts? How do we measure up? Look at the difference in works and and law and the gospel here is critical. Kevin DeYoung says this, much of the impotence of the American church, of American churches, is tied to a profound ignorance and apathy about justification. Our people live in a fog of guilt, or just as bad, they think better, a better person is all God requires. If you get justification wrong, you're going to land in one of those places. You're going you're gonna to think, oh man, I, I just walk around all the time under the condemnation of God, or you're going to think over here, oh, if I could only be a better person. And that's what your Christianity is about. And both are lies. So what does Paul tell the Galatians about justification? He starts by saying what justification is not. It is not our status. Justification is being declared righteous before God and it does not come by pedigree of birth or family of origin or any of those other identities. It comes from none of that. Do you know that first broad category of that we said, here's how the, the, the sample would go in Shreveport, Bossier, likely, hey, I was raised Baptist, I was raised Presbyterian, I was raised Catholic, I was raised Episcopal, or whatever it is, Resting in that to save you. He opens this by saying, it won't get it done. Me being a Jew is not enough. Being a Gentile is not enough. Being born into a a home that holds a certain religion is not enough. It will not get it done. It's not our status. It's not our pedigree. It's not our birth. Why can't our pedigree save us? Why can't the home that we're born into matter enough to rescue us? It's because of this. It utterly denies the reality of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. Our families aren't enough to overcome that. They can't do it. Second, he counters uh, false justification this way. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. The term works of the law here has been the subject of just countless books, stacks, volumes. I'm going to try to summarize. So what we've been discussing so far in Exodus has been the moral law. 
the Ten Commandments of God. Works of the law would be actively pursuing those things. But then they work themselves out in two distinct ways in Israel's history. Ceremonial laws that regulate their life in terms of how they approach God. This would include dietary restrictions, feasting days, fasting days, the way they live their life uh, regarding the sacrificial system. All of those things are part of the ceremonial law that is attached to the moral law. Then on the other side, there's a civil code. This is how you relate to your neighbor. What happens when you crash your car into your neighbor's car? How do you handle that? How do you handle it when something gets stolen out of your backyard? Well, there's regulation made in the civil law about all of those things. So you see that in its totality, that's the law. The moral law. The ceremonial law. The civil law. Paul comes along and says, no one will be justified by keeping the law. Why? We've already seen it at every turn, right? Because we're guilty. We're guilty of the moral law that still stands. By the way, the civil and the ceremonial law find their head and end in Christ. They point directly to Him. The moral law flows from the character and heart of God. It is binding for all time, and we're all guilty. It cannot and will not justify us. Works will not get it done. So Paul's saying our best moral performance, when we're on our best behavior, our best worship, we get it all right. Our best behavior in civil life, we're just the best neighbor and you could still die and go to hell and be separated from God for eternity. You will not be justified before God by works of the law. Notice the second half of verse 16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. What's needed if not works? He points to the only place we can look to find hope. He points to Christ. Not this. This will never save this. Belief in Christ. Faith in Him alone brings justification. Brings a declared righteousness before God. That is only possible in Jesus. That is only possible in Him and Him alone. Belief in Christ, justified by faith and not by works. Imagine a person is supposed to be perfectly clean before the king. And he comes before the king and he's anything but perfectly clean. His garments are terrible. 
He's smelly. He's guilty. He, he, he can't stand before the king. That's the exact thing that we heard out of Zechariah chapter 3. A priest standing there in filthy garments. Not only that, but Satan is doing what in the text? Do you remember? Accusing him. Look how filthy he is. Look, that, that's what our attempt to please God by our works, that's what that looks like. It looks like us standing before a holy God in absolute filth and the accuser saying, look how nasty they are. That's us. Is that the way that text ends? Him standing there filthy before God and the accuser getting one over? No. What happens? An angel flies to him and strips these filthy rags and places pure garments over him. Rips the old turban off and places a new one on him. And suddenly that which was filthy is pure before God. But that's what Christ does. We are now clothed in Him, in His righteousness. One that we could not earn. We could never accomplish it by works of the law. We've been given new garments in Christ. There's no question in my mind that there are people among us who feel weighed down by sin and accused and desperate for cleansing, desperate for relief from this burden. Hear the word of God tell us that justification, the righteousness that we cannot earn by works of the law, can be found by faith in Christ and Him alone. Hear that message today. That's the truth. The heart of Paul's argument here is the idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heart of it is an identity shift. We want to make it about us and our identity and our family of origin and all these other things. And he's saying, no, the identity that you need is in Christ. Our lives hidden with God in Christ. What old identities have you left behind as a result of being in Christ? How is the gospel of Jesus Christ and justification in Him alone, how has that transformed you? What are some practical ways that you're being declared righteous in the the court of the triune God? How has that changed you and shaped your life? Listen, if, if if we get the gospel... If we get justification by faith in Christ alone for salvation and we look at others and impose on them a standard that's not imposed on us, that's exactly what Peter was doing. And he's saying you're lying about the gospel. You say you know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, justified in the courts of God, and then you look at your brother and sister and make salvation about something else for them. Paul says, how dare you? How dare you do that because you're lying about the gospel when you do? 
How are we saved? Justification by faith in Christ alone. We also see him talking about union. Our lives are lived in union with Christ alone. He asks a question. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? He asks, the the automatic question of the gospel is this. Because I'm justified in Christ, I can now do what I want. If you have not asked that question, have you really tasted grace? Because every time he lays out this argument for beautiful, astounding grace, he has to ask and answer this question. He did it in Romans. Since we're saved by grace, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? The way he's asking the question here, does that make Christ a servant of sin? How does he answer? Certainly not. Of course not. If our justification is in Christ, then we can just commit murder, right? We're justified in Christ. We hate our neighbor. We can just off him, right? We don't, we don't like what he's been doing in his yard lately. We're justified in Christ. We can just continue in adulterous affairs, right? It's sanctioned by the Lord. We can just lie to our co-workers to get ahead. We're justified in the, in the courts of God by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works of the law. We can do what we want. It's like, are, are we making Christ a servant of sin? It's a good question. Have you ever asked that question? Because if you haven't, have you tasted the gospel? It's a natural question that arises in Paul's mind in his life and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can we keep sinning? And the answer is certainly not. No. Why not? His answer here is is this. Because when you're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, you are unified with Christ. You are in union with Him. Does Christ hate your neighbor? Does Christ hate him? Is Christ continuing in adulterous affairs? Is Christ lying to get ahead at work? No. Then child of God, neither should we. We are in union with him. That's Paul's answer. He says you have two options here. You can rebuild the law. That's one option. So we're saved by grace. We can rebuild the law. And then what does he say? If we rebuild the law, what happens? I'm a transgressor. I just proved myself to be a transgressor. Then the next option in 19 through 20, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul so identifies himself with Christ. This union that he says, I was there with him. When he died, I died. 
We're a lot of centuries removed from when this was originally penned, but can we see the reality of what he's saying? Were we there with Christ and his death? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And the life that I I live now, I I don't live by works of the law, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love is the primary thing now motivating his life. This goes back to the new covenant. A new heart, new motives. Paul makes this intensely personal. I, 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 me, this is his relationship with Christ. Is it yours and is it mine? Paul says he died to the law and lives to God. Because the love of Christ has done this. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. Why can't we do whatever we want? Because Christ died. And we died with him. He was buried and we were put in there with him. And he rose from the dead and we rose with him. Ephesians even goes so far as to say we're seated with him in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus now. How can we go on sinning? Yes, we're saved by grace and grace alone. But how can we continue to pursue sin? We're with Christ. What is he pursuing? Have you considered union with Christ so much so that you've considered that you were there with Jesus when he died? Do you just see that as that thing that happened over there that is great? Or do you see yourself there? What happened to those old impulses, those old desires? Paul says, I was there with him. They're dead. The reason we aren't making a sinner out of Christ is that the call to come to Christ is to come through union with him. We don't make him a sinner. We don't go on sanctioning sin because we're with him. He's with us. Union with Christ means that Christians are given a new identity. An utterly new identity in Christ. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. Our newness of life isn't based on our family of origin. It's not based on our past, present, or future deeds. It's not based on how we measure up against the law of God. Our new identity is based on our position in Christ. Who are we in him Paul applies it for us. This life propelled by love and the Son of God who gave himself for us. The life I live now, this present reality, is part of his daily life. The life I live today is based on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's real. Is the gospel something that just happened to us? Like when we were eight Nine years old, 
We believe, we pray, and that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. That's beautiful at whatever age that occurs. But is it something that just happened at that point in time and then we, we move along in our life, move away from the gospel? Paul's saying, my daily life today, right now, is being propelled and lived and fueled by the gospel. Do we make decisions based on the gospel? Based on the grace that God has shown us? Do we, do we speak like that? Do we relate to our community like that? Do we care for our neighbors based on the gospel at work today? Not something that happened way back then. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. Is it our present reality? So many applications here. Paul applies this life and Uh, We can see these contrasts. Under the law, holiness is try harder. Be more committed. Keep all the rules. Do more for God than you're currently doing. Does that sound familiar? In Christ, holiness is believing who you are in Christ, that you're loved and that he gave himself up for you. Believing the gospel leads to new affections, that are Christ-like. Under the law, the focus is behavior on the outside. Again, are they keeping the rules? Uh, Peter's eating hot dogs again. Send somebody over. Changes outward under the law, getting your act together. Obedience. flows from a desire not to look bad under the law. I can't look bad. What do people think? I've got to polish the outside of the cup. In union with Christ, the focus is on the inside and change is at the root level and it works itself out from the inside, from the heart that has been declared righteous in the courts of God, who is suddenly propelled by the grace of God in Christ. It starts on the inside and works its way out. Under the law, the power is human effort. What you need is more willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it. To obey, I try harder than I did last time I failed. In union with Christ, faith supplies the power Faith in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, to obey, I trust the Lord, believing that His way is best. It hurts and it's hard, but I'm in union with Him. The foundational principle of the law is my obedience to God that leads to my relationship with Him. My obedience leads to a relationship. The foundational principle in union with Christ is my being justified in the righteousness of Christ. My union with Christ by faith leads to obedience to him. It's a result of. It doesn't produce. We could go on and on and on. Lastly, Paul concludes 
the heart of this argument by pointing to the grace of God and declaring sinners righteous. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The argument is simple. If you could work hard enough, that second response that we talked about at the beginning, hey, I'm a good guy. I went to church for a long time. I'm a good person. He says, if you could be saved that way, then Christ died for nothing. If you could be saved by sola bootstrapa, not sola gratis, then Christ died for no purpose. He died for nothing. So what we're saying when we're saying we're saved by works is we empty the cross of any power. We say Jesus died for nothing. The heart of this argument is the grace of God declaring sinners righteous in Christ is beautiful. That's how we're saved. Grace is the unmerited favor of God applied to us by the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Jesus. Paul said he would never nullify or bring to nothing the grace of God because to do so is to empty the, the cross of any power and to say Christ died for nothing and he would never do that. Why do we champion grace? One is because the law will never save us. It can't do it. Another reason is a, a grace champion is going to make much of Jesus. Listen, are those things... It, it, yes, it's at the heart of Christianity individually. I so want this to be at the heart of who we are as the people of God as a church. Is this our engine? Is this what makes us run? Do we hum on this truth of justification by faith in Christ alone? Of living lives in union with our Savior? of being beautiful instruments of God's astounding grace in our community? Do we have an answer for those people who say, who say I'm saved because of my family? Or those neighbors who, who generally have some, some general sense of morality that they're keeping and say that that somehow earns them favor with God? What do we say to that? Do we have an answer? I hope so. I pray we do. We're righteous before a holy and just God. Law-keeping will never be enough. The righteousness that we need had to come from somewhere else. Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that his ministry, the beautiful ministry of Jesus, rises and culminates and grows and it leads to a cross. That shows us what we deserve. Here's what all our law-breaking deserves. And here's what Christ took. And us in him, crucified, buried, and risen to new life. It's good news. Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Again, would you use it to change us, shape us? May the gospel not be a past reality, but a, a present motivation. Father, shape us. Keep us from saying false things about the gospel, applying a standard for salvation that you don't apply. 
Lord, would you do these things, teaching us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.